Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, just as a quick reminder, on Monday evening, I'll be on the Dangerous Info podcast with Jesse James and Outcast. Again, sort of as a certainly as a secondary guest. Truth for Oxford is going to be the primary guest. And again, they're going to be there and sharing more information regarding the Ethan Crumbly shooting and the entire area and community. And uh, a lot of the information that they have as well, because again, it's it's remarkably strange, the things that are going on there, and that's putting it mildly. So feel free and tune into that if you're interested. Again, it starts around 7 p.m., so there you have it. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what, bounce over to the theamericanclassroom.substack.com if you're interested and check out my parts one and two regarding the final report from Guidepost in relation to, of course, the Ethan Crumbly shooting and what took place there and the things that were, in fact, taking place beforehand. But my two Substack articles specifically have to do, I should say, the at least part one, has to do a lot with the technology adoption that exists within schools and, of course, the technology adoption that exists even to this day within the Oxford Community School District and how problematic that is. For a variety of reasons. Again, one, one major one, of course, is that students can upload whatever they want within their Google Docs, and yet the employees of the actual school building don't have access to this material. So they could be uploading remarkably harmful things or indicators that they themselves are a harm to themselves or even other people, and the employees would have no idea. So that's, that's the first thing. And I bounced through again those technology pieces and, uh, and those particular companies and programs that the school district has employed. And then in part two, I go through the timeline of everything that took place and ultimately, again, how the investigators of the, uh, of the guidepost report clearly indicate that it was the counselor who knew the most amount of information regarding Ethan Crumbly and how this entire thing, of course, could have been prevented. In fact, it was rather fortuitous. I, I bounced back into that report and I. I decided to type in their their Alice training to see if that would pop up, and it did, and it popped up numerous times. And I don't know how I skipped over it, but believe it or not, they were set to actually have a a shooting drill, so to speak, approximately 12 days before the actual shooting. And the reason that they canceled it, or at least the reason they provide, is that there were actually rumors bouncing around in the school and in the area that there might be a school shooting. So what they didn't want to do was is have a drill, even though that those apparent rumors had subsided to some extent. They didn't want uh, they didn't want to boost anybody's fears regarding the drills. So they decided to cancel it. Uh, again, this right here is a huge problem. These quote unquote shooter drills that these schools have are remarkably counterproductive. And, and this right here proves it. Again, you had an area where there were already rumors swirling about a potential shooting, allegedly. And then they had one of these drills scheduled, but they're openly admitting that the drill itself would cause people to panic and individuals in the building to believe that it was actually real. With, of course, allegedly one of the employees uh, pretending to be the bad guy in this situation. And then, of course, the whole staged response and then where people are supposed to go and what people are supposed to do. I'm telling you, 
these drills are awful. They're just awful. I've brought them up before. You know, this is one of the things that really started to exist in American schools when I became a school teacher. Again, when I was a kid, we didn't have live shooter drills. None of that existed. It was the stupid tornado drill and then the stupid fire drills, and then that was about it. We, we didn't have live shooter drills. And again, even the lockdown procedures, we didn't have lockdown drills in, our, in, in classrooms when I, was, when I was a student in school. That wasn't until I became a teacher again in the early 2000s. And then that right there is, is when all of this ramped up and it, of course, became way more serious. And now it's hit a different level where it's big business. And it just twists the minds of everybody who's involved, in particular the students, because they don't know what's real and what's not. They're believing what's on their television all of the time regarding these either real or fake school shootings. But at the same time, it's just uh, it's more mind control. It's a psychological operation to get everybody to panic. I, you know, again, I'm, I'm not saying these are safe environments. They aren't. And as I say in the Substack, reading that final report flat out changed me. It changed me. I mean, it's, it, it is a messed up document. And the amount of negligence and the dereliction of duty that exists within the document is present in every American K-12 school, public, private, or charter. It doesn't matter. And as I, again, say in the Substack articles, you can't read this document and keep sending your children to school. It's frightening. It's frightening the levels of stupidity among the employees. It really is incredible. But I'm not going to elaborate any more on it. Again, I just recommend you bounce over there and check it out. And remember, you can always download the Substack app onto your cell phone and have the robot lady read it to you if you're not interested in reading it yourself. So there you go. Okay. Anyway, moving on. You may recall that last week I brought up the Heritage Foundation again and their Project 2025 and how, again, that entire document is basically sort of a predetermined playbook, so to speak, regardless of who allegedly enters the White House or becomes the next president. And, uh, and again, they are an NGO, and, that, and that's worth mentioning. They are a company, and they are interested in business and what is good for business and what is good for them. Because a business that works on their behalf is a business that's, of course, going to make them money. And if they have the opportunity to present documentation to anybody who enters the White House and they think that it will be favorable, in particular, again, if it's a, so, uh, you know, a so-called conservative, I should say, then, uh, you know, then they're going to continue to exist. So, again, I would invite people to understand that it is a business and they're jockeying for position to be an influential partner in whatever business venture or, again, three-letter agency wants to be changed or reformed and so on and so on. But as you've heard me say and as you know, I don't think that these three-letter agencies can be reformed. I don't think that they need to. They need to be demolished forever. But again, in the 2025 or Project 2025 document, they don't call for the abolishment of the Department of Education. They just say, well, we need to reform it, and we need to do this, and we need to change that, and we need to move some people over here and maybe take away some people over here. But they're interested in maintaining it, and this is the problem. Because again, regardless of what happens going forward, even four years from now or eight years from now or 16 years from now, I mean, it, you, you, can't, you can't continue to maintain the agency that continues to be the playground and the problem for anybody who shows up within it. Again, it'll just change hands the next time around. Now, me personally, 
I think it's pretty clear, given the voters and the citizens of America, that they're pretty much done voting Democrat, certainly on a national scale. I mean, that's over with now, which is good. I mean, voter fraud is the only thing that's going to get them into office. It's still a local problem in the towns and the cities where we live. There's no doubt about that. But I I, I do believe that at the national level, they're finished, which again means let's go back into history and examine three-letter agencies, who started them, why they were started, and then ask ourselves, do they need to exist? So here's what I want to play here. I have a piece of audio, and it's rather ironic that this just happened to take place the other day. But Kevin Roberts, the president of the Heritage Foundation, was in Davos at the World Economic Forum. And I have a problem with what he says, because again, he's a businessman. And this particular audio clip, of course, was making the rounds the other day on social media, and a lot of people were like, yeah, the Heritage Foundation, they're standing up for Trump, and they're standing up for freedom, and they want what's best for America, and so on and so on. You know, we we need to get behind the Heritage Foundation. And again, I thought to myself, these people don't understand what an NGO is. They exist for the sole purpose of trying to maintain themselves regardless of who is in office. That's their, that's their point. They always have donors who donate to them. They, they, don't, uh, they don't disappear with time, and they're always jockeying for position and jockeying for influence. Again, as you'll hear Kevin Roberts say, regardless of who ends up in the White House as a so-called conservative. Well, that's an, that's an issue. He seems to think that regardless of who ends up in the White House, that they're going to go after the quote-unquote elites. That's not true. Do you think that if Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley were to win the presidential election, which we know isn't going to happen, but say, for example, just a hypothetical that it did, does he actually believe as the president of the Heritage Foundation that they're going to go after the elites? Of course not. They're funded by them. That's part of the problem. But again, he has to say it that way because he still wants influence. And the Heritage Foundation still wants influence. Again, keep in mind, the Heritage Foundation is a major contributor to PBS, right next to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This isn't good. Everybody's criticized PBS, but they don't want to criticize the organizations that donate to PBS and all of the propaganda that exists on PBS. So, again, I would invite people to keep that in mind, but here's his audio and his little, uh, his little speech. And again, you know, he pushes back on a couple of people on the stage, but you have to keep in mind, he's a businessman. He, he has to say things a particular way because he knows that the woke satanic agenda is not good for business. And a lot of people know this. And again, being a businessman, he knows this too. But he also doesn't really care about American independence in, in the sense that we don't need three-letter agencies and we don't need NGOs deciding things and putting forth playbooks in order for politicians to allegedly follow these playbooks. Again, the Project 2025 thing maintains three-letter agencies. This is a problem. But here's his words uh, out of his own mouth at the World Economic Forum recently. So give this a listen in three, two, one. It's laughable that you would or anyone would describe Davos as protecting liberal democracy. It's equally, standing up for it. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's equally laughable 
to use the word dictatorship at Davos and, and aim that at President Trump. In fact, I think that's absurd. But I'm going to step aside from that constructive criticism and instead answer your question. And, and I'm going to be substantive here. President Trump, if he's the next president, for that matter, I think whoever the next conservative president is going to take on the power of the elites, which I mentioned earlier. But there, the, the thing that I want to drive home here, the very reason that I'm here at Davos, is to explain to many people in this room and who are watching, with all due respect, nothing personal, but that's your part of the problem. Political elites tell the average people on three or four or five issues that the reality is X, when in fact reality is Y. Take immigration. Elites tell us that open borders and even illegal immigration are okay. The average person tells us in the United States that both rob them of the American way of life. They're right. President Trump will take that on on behalf of the average American. Elites also tell us that public safety isn't a problem in big American cities. Just travel to New York or Washington or Dallas, Texas. The average person will tell you that the lack of public safety damages not just the American way of life, but their life. President Trump will take that on. Thirdly, I guess the favorite at the World Economic Forum is climate change. Elites tell us that we we have this existential crisis with so-called climate change, so much so that climate alarmism is probably the greatest cause for mental health crisis in the world. The solutions, the average person know, based on climate change, are far worse and more harmful and cost more human lives, especially in Europe during the time that you need heating, than do the problem and the problems themselves. Fourth, two more here, Rob. The fourth, China. The number one adversary, not just to the United States, but to free people on planet Earth. Not only do we at, at Davos not say that, we give the Chinese Communist Party a platform. Count on President Trump ending that nonsense. And fifth, as we sit here, another supranational organization, the World Health Organization, is discussing foisting gender ideology upon the global south. These are practices that are under review, if not being rejected, by countries in Northern Europe. The new president, especially if it's President Trump, will, as you like to say, trust the science. He will understand the basic biological reality of manhood and womanhood. And do you know why? Not because of retribution, not because he's a dictator, but because he has the power of the American people behind him. And it's connected to Senator Portman's excellent point that in addition to needing a vigorous executive, we look forward to having the popular will inform both the House and Senate in 2025 to pass laws on all of those issues and many others. Ultimately, Rob, I think President Trump, if in fact he wins a second term, is going to be inspired by the wise words of Javier Millet, who said that he was in power not to guide sheep, but to awaken lions. That's what the average American and the average free person on planet Earth wants out of leaders. Again, it's a cute speech. Very cute. It just requires a little bit of translation so that we can get down to the crux of the matter. First of all, he mentions climate change like it's a real thing. Actually, before the climate change lie, he of course brings up, as I said earlier, it doesn't matter which conservative president ends up you know, in the White House, that they're going to go after the elites. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't believe that for a second. Then again, he brings up climate change and how ridiculous it kind of is. But again, he continues to use that same made-up verbiage. 
There's no such thing as climate change. It doesn't exist. It's a money laundering scheme and a money laundering operation. But the more that he, as a, again, president of an NGO, keeps talking about these things like they are real when they are not, this perpetuates the problem. Again, none of them are saying it's fake. It doesn't exist. It's a made-up term. They're not saying this. Now, I'm sure, again, that if he said that, what I just said, that his plane would crash in the mountains, uh, you know, in the Swiss Alps or whatever on his, on his way back to the United States. It's highly possible, maybe not, but who knows? People just have to stop agreeing with all of this and continuing to use these words because when they continue to use fake words that don't exist, they're perpetuating the problem. The next thing he's brought up, of course, was China, the constant whipping post of the world. China this, China that, our number one adversary. No, they are not. Our number one adversary are the money lenders and the, and the money controllers and the property controllers, and they happen to be Jewish. That's our number one problem. Because, as it leads into the very next issue he brought up, the whole gender ideology. Do you think China came up with that? Or was it the Jewish moneylenders and the controllers and the degenerates who, again, happened to be Jewish? Was it them that brought it up? Is it them that created that? Is it, is it that that's in the Talmud? Or does that exist in some Chinese constitution somewhere that I haven't seen? We know who created all of this. We know who's pushing all of this. It's not China. It isn't China. And then, uh, unfortunately, he references Senator Portman because apparently he was on the stage. And again, Senator Portman's an outgoing Ohio senator. Senator Portman is a turncoat. He's a traitor. Spoke out against Trump. Uh, he had a, he, Senator Portman has a gay son. And then before you know it, Senator Portman started voting for the gay marriage stuff and all the gay ideology and you name it. I mean, he's, he's, he's 100% left if he wasn't from the very start. Claims to be a Republican, but he isn't. He's just a feckless, weak nobody. No one in Ohio likes Senator Portman. And again, I, even Brian Kemp was there, the governor of Georgia, and he's bragging about basically turning Georgia into a foreign country. The traitors are among us all over the place. And again, you don't get an invitation to speak in Davos at the World Economic Forum's conference by accident. It's not an accident. It's the illusion of choice. It's the illusion of turning things around. It's the illusion of you know, we need to make things better for the people and we need to work on misinformation and disinformation and all this other nonsense. Again, they created this giant list at their conference of the things that they believe are the most important that they have to address. And as it turns out, pollution, believe it or not, and climate change and all that nonsense was not even in the top three or four. It was like number five or number six, something like that. But the number one thing that they said was the most important thing to tackle was misinformation and disinformation. Translation, that means anything that anybody says that goes against what the World Economic Forum said. That they want to do whatever they have to do to censor those people and those groups. I have a problem with that. You should have a problem with that too. Everybody should. But again, I'm going to move on to, to more education stuff here, but I don't trust the Heritage Foundation. I don't trust Kevin Roberts. Again, people aren't seeing his invitation there as being suspicious, and they're not looking at it like, well, you know, he's an NGO, and 
maybe you know maybe he is a good guy maybe has he has the uh you know the the hearts and minds of Americans at the forefront of his thoughts and he really does care he's a businessman he wants to remain employed i'd even add this again you heard the guy at the very beginning sort of interrupt him and say you know we're standing up for liberal democracy a liberal democracy let, let me translate that too first of all we don't live in a democracy we live in a constitutional republic this continues to be a massive problem that people don't understand. They're letting the enemy get away with saying the term democracy. We don't live in a democracy. I, I even hate the cliche saying where they say, uh, I, well, it was even Alex Soros who said it, and he was on stage too looking like a, a high school leftist who doesn't know what the hell he's saying either. He's moving his arms around and whining and doing whatever he's doing, and, and again, trying to talk like he knows what the hell he's talking about. And he knows nothing. I mean, he's an absolute fool. But even so, they bring up the term democracy, and then, th again, the guy says, well, it's a liberal democracy. The fact is, is the term liberal means liberal control of the government over the people. That's what it means. The term conservative means conservative control of the government over the people. Me, I'm an abolitionist. I don't want any control of the government over the people. I don't want conservative control of the government over the people, and I don't want I certainly don't want liberal control of the government over the people. But we're letting these people get away with saying these words and these phrases, and they're not being corrected on the spot. This is a, this is an issue, and this is going to keep being an issue. Because again, I mean, if we had a dollar for every time that we're going <laughs> to we had a dollar for every time we're going to hear the term democracy this year. Honest to God, ladies and gentlemen, we'd all be filthy rich. Every single one of us. Just put a dollar in the jar every single time you hear the term democracy. The jar is going to be overfl overflowing after day one. And it already is. I mean, we're, you know, a few weeks into January here and it's already the case. So buckle up. It's just going to keep getting weirder out there because, again, everybody's trying to jockey for position. It's unfortunate. Anyway, okay, here we go. Some good news. Education stuff here. I've got a great deal to go over. Uh, some good, some bad, and some very interesting. And, in fact, one particular study, which I'll mention at the end, that I was invited to review for publication in Sage's publication. Uh, I, it was sent to me. I gave it a read, and then I logged in and, and gave it uh, my, my excellent review and then recommended it for publication. But I want to get to that toward the end because it really is interesting, and it really does blow the lid off of what makes a horrible school environment and who, you know, who and what is really to blame. So anyway, first of all, more good news. This was from the Gateway Pundit. My apologies for the reference. It was titled, Thousands of Schools at Risk of closing due to massive drop in enrollment. Excellent. It says the pandemic was one of the worst things to happen to public education in years. See, there was no pandemic. This continues to also be the problem, is that people keep saying this term pandemic like it's real. There was no pandemic. Never was, doesn't exist, but even the Gateway Pundit still uses this term like it's real. Anyway, I digress. It says, and the teachers' unions and Democrats made it even worse by repeatedly postponing and reopening schools, or the reopening of schools. 
It says, many parents were also horrified to discover the woke content that's being taught. No, it's not woke. It's satanic. It happens to be Jewish. And it's, uh, and it's disgusting and degenerate and sexual and a thousand other things. It's not China, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Again, China's not the problem. I'm not saying they're good. They clearly aren't. They're communists also. But they, are, you know, they didn't create the degeneracy that exists here. It wasn't them. It continues, and it says, across the country, people found alternatives in homeschooling, private schools, and charter schools. It says, a new report shows that thousands of school districts risk closure due to massive enrollment loss. The warnings stem from an analysis of national enrollment data by the Brookings Institute, another NGO, and some reporting from the 74. It says, their analysis came after Brookings researchers found a decline in elementary and middle school enrollment, a one-fifth loss of their enrollment. It says, quote, enrollment declines are everywhere, Brookings Institute fellow Solfkis Goulas said. Yeah, real Anglo name there. Anyway, (laughs) it says, the report also noted Jackson Public Schools voted to close 11 schools and merge two of them, and it says some of these schools saw a loss of 30% or more of their students since 2018. Excellent. This is excellent. Again, you've heard me say, if the, if the brick-and-mortar buildings continue to exist, let them only exist for the mentally handicapped and the physically disabled. I don't have a problem with that. If those individuals want to keep going to a brick-and-mortar building, perfect. Again, it, it is state law. State has to, the, the state has to provide those children with a place to go. But the able-bodied, able-minded individuals who can read and write, they can teach themselves. There's no reason, and I mean zero reason, for them to be wasting their days in a brick-and-mortar environment with the games, the gimmicks, and the bullshit. There's just no reason for it. It continues here, and it says plenty of school districts saw decreases similar to that of Jackson Public Schools, the report states, and that number more than doubled between 2019 and 2021. It says the report explained further that the decline is projected to continue throughout the decade and that Oregon, New Mexico, and West Virginia are among the states expected to see an enrollment decline at least another 10%, unquote. That's awesome. This is awesome. You've heard me bring up the percent 11%, that if it hits 11%, the game is over. The schools have to close. They have no choice. Well, they're openly admitting here that in at least three states, they're expecting that enrollment to decline by 10%. That's enough. That's, that's enough to close them. This is an excellent, excellent thing. And the more conversations, and I'm telling you, this is a big, big deal, and I'm sure Sicily in New Mexico herself can openly testify to this, but in the conversations that she has with people, when people look at her as a former school teacher and they say, so what are you doing now? She looks at him and says, I'm a homemaker. I'm teaching my children at home and they're not going to the school system either. The looks on the faces of the people who ask her that question just have to drop. Their faces have to drop. Their, their mouth has to be wide open and their jaw on the floor. 
because that right there, you can't hear that from someone who used to be in the business who didn't wear the mask. And at the same time, say to yourself that you're on the right end of things. Well, I keep working in the business and I keep sending my kids and I'm doing the right thing. Are you? Again, you can't keep hearing these kinds of stories and see the trend. And and again, the reasons behind the trend. And the reasons behind the trend are really the most important. Yes, of course, homeschooling by itself is remarkably important. And frankly, it should have been this way, you know, since forever, really. But at the exact same time, it's the reasons behind the trend that matter most. And that's also what people aren't focusing on. And as we know, they're not taking any accountability for the reasons behind the trend of homeschooling and unenrolling your children permanently. Here's a particular post from the Fairfax County Parents Association in Fairfax, Virginia on, uh, on X. And it says, Virginia school enrollment projected to drop faster than expected. The biggest declines in North Virginia. More than one-fourth of the decline will come from Fairfax County, which is currently losing population for the first time since the 1820s. Now, yes, the low birth rate has a great deal to do with this, too. But ultimately, as the substacks prove and as the guidepost report proves regarding the, the, uh, the, the Crumbly shooting, it's stupidity. Stupidity, brainwashing, lying and criminal behavior, and degenerate behavior. This is why people are leaving. They took the bait on the whole COVID lie, they took the bait on the mask-wearing lie and that widespread abuse, and they took the bait regarding the shots. And now you have employees getting more sick than they've ever been, and they don't know why. You have employees dying across the United States, and people don't know why. And you have students dying because they took the shots, and well, people don't know why. It's the lack of brains. It's the lack of thinking. It's the lack of accountability. Again, don't even get me started on the curriculum they actually teach. It's all lies. That's, that's about it. But this right here again, same thing in California too. It says here in California, more than 1,400 schools have seen a 20% or more drop in enrollment. And then, of course, they bring up lots of different excuses and factors. They say, well, parents are moving and, uh, there are other pop-up schools that exist, and they're choosing to go there too, and demographic changes and the declining birth rate and blah, blah, blah. They're not saying that they're being abused in these environments. They're not saying that families are saying, I've had enough. I've had enough. We're done. That's the real reason. Those are the real reasons for the decline, and I love it, and it's continuing, and it's not going to get better. This, this ball is so far down the hill. There's no getting it back. Not happening. Okay. Another one from Gateway, sorry. It says, Illinois mandates, this is jacked up and continues to prove the problem. Also, again, regarding the Ethan Crumbly thing too. But it says, Illinois mandates mental health screenings for 2 million students. I'm telling you, they aren't schools anymore. These are mental institutions. And they're mental institutions that want to evaluate the mental health of the inmates, i.e. the students. And of course, the inmates are running the asylum, which by and large are the mentally ill individuals who work there, who are administering the mental health and emotional health and well-being 
wellness checks. Again, Ethan Crumbly took a wellness check. You know what happened with that? It went right into his Google Docs. It went right into the school-sanctioned computer and, and Google Documents program that they had. Not a single employee saw it. And he scored poorly. And he scored poorly on all of the parameters. Every single parameter, he, he answered false to all of them. Do you feel good? False. Are you, are you happy and healthy? False. Do you like the environment you're in? False. I mean, he just, he just kept saying no to everything, but not a single employee saw that. That's a red flag. Again, the problem with this is that it's asking the school teacher to do things for which they're not trained to do. They have no background in it, certainly not at the teacher education level at the universities. They're not teaching them about any of this. And at the exact same time, they have to also allegedly teach a subject and teach their subject matter, assuming it's real, which we know when it comes to history and science, it's not real. So what are they left with? They're left to become a pseudo-counselor. And then we assume that they're going to read the results and be able to analyze the results of these so-called wellness surveys, and they don't do that either. I mean, they would be overwhelming the system if they had serious problems, which they all do. But let's say, for example, in a classroom of 30 students, you had five of them that openly said on any kind of a wellness check or wellness survey that they're suicidal or have had suicidal thoughts. What are the odds that that teacher would catch that in a wellness survey? And then again, let's assume that that's just one classroom. With every classroom that administers such a useless survey, those, those numbers would multiply. That would overwhelm any counselor. That would overwhelm anybody in any quote-unquote wellness position. And they wouldn't be able to meet with all of those students and meet with all of those parents and talk about what's really going on in between the ears of that, of that particular student or those students. No chance. No chance. And you have to keep this in mind, too. They never evaluate the actual school building itself and what goes on within the school as being the problem. The school district, by design, is designed to be difficult on individuals of all ages, children and adults who work within, and it's designed again to wear them down, which the study I'm going to mention here in a little bit proves it. It proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. But the whole environment and its makeup and its design is designed to destroy the mind of the individuals who work within and actually attend as students. They're never going to blame the environment, though. It'll never happen. Let's just give them more wellness surveys. And now again, Illinois has introduced Bill 4343 that will require yearly mental health screenings for 2 million school students in the state, which it says, quote, creates the wellness checks in Schools Program Act, provides that subject to appropriation, the Department of Health Care and Family Services shall establish the wellness checks in school collaborative for school district, or districts plural, that wish to implement wellness checks to identify students in grades 7 through 12 who are at risk of mental health conditions including depression and or mental health issues. Now, it does say districts that wish to implement wellness checks. If they implement the wellness checks, they'll get a financial kickback. What school district's going to say no to that? 
School districts love free money, and they love wasting everybody's time. This is going to back up on them. I'm telling you, this is not, this is, <laughs> this just isn't good. Just like Ethan Crumbly, there will be students who slip through the cracks, so to speak. There, there will be endless students who fill these out in a negative way. The student will do something that is harmful, and then they'll say, well, we didn't see it coming. Well, we don't, we don't have any proof that, uh, that they were at a risk you know, of harming themselves or harming other people. I mean, we had no idea. And then any investigator would say, did you give them a wellness survey? And they'll go, uh, well, I, I think so. Well, let's take a look at that then. Let's examine that wellness survey. Oh, look, here it says he's going to hurt other people. Here, here it says that he or she doesn't like the entire environment, that they're sick of all of this. Again, it's going to be right there. Crystal clear for them to see, but they're going to deny any responsibility. Just like, again, the Oxford School has done the exact same thing. We didn't see this coming. It was right there the whole time. Here's another story. Again, proves the environment is continuing to go downhill. And people wonder why. This is from the postmillennial.com. It is titled, Milwaukee Public Schools Issues Best Practices, quote-unquote, that cliche phrase, on how to dismantle whiteness in classrooms. The subtitle here, it says, The memo encourages racism against white students through the redistribution of resources to minority students under the guise of equity. And that right there is the definition of equity. It's about taking from whites and giving it to non-whites. And whatever that is, is beyond me. I have no idea. No idea what that is. But here's what it says. Milwaukee Public Schools allegedly issued a memo to staff instructing them to decenter whiteness in the classroom. The memo states that whiteness, quote, is everywhere around us. The memo was published by Milwaukee Public Schools in July of 2023 with the intention of creating, quote, best practices addressing discipline disproportionality through positive educational community. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it is. It then says, quote, in, effort, in efforts rather to create an educational community and positive district climate, Milwaukee Public Schools is providing four approaches that all schools are encouraged to utilize. The memo called Educational Community and District Climate Begins. It says the memo was publicized by Young Americans Foundation on Friday. It says, quote, whiteness is everywhere around us. Educational practices have been rooted in whiteness and coming from a lens of whiteness for years. Educators could reflect on which elements of whiteness they see in education, which they participate in, and which elements they work to dismantle, unquote. It goes on, and I'm going to keep reading, uh, but a little interjection here. You know this game. You know how this gets played. If you take the word white out and you put in black, what do you end up with? You end up with screaming, yelling, burning down buildings, and lawsuits. Any single time that a school district puts forth something like this, they should instantly be sued, and every single white student and white parent should pull their children out. And, frankly, regardless of race and skin color, Anybody who knows that this is wrong, who works within those environments or sends their children to those environments, should pull their children out immediately. And then the school district will collapse. Yes, even the Milwaukee public school system will collapse with a lack of attendance. 
But I know people would say, well, Sean, it's probably majority black anyway. So, you know, what's the problem? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Even if it's a majority black and you pull out all of the white students, they'll still collapse. They won't have the numbers. I should add this too, and it's basically something that should take place before these nitwits get in a room and decide to uh, make up this 33-page memo and this 33-page document, which they created. Interesting number, by the way, 33. Uh, But either way, you would think that they would consult with a lawyer and say, can we do this? Is this legal? And then you would think that somebody, anybody in the room would say, this is illegal. You can't do this. This openly discriminates. It violates the Civil Rights Act. It violates endless laws, both state and federal, violates the Constitution. Hello? No one. And here's, again, the worst part is that if it gets rescinded, if this entire thing ends up disappearing and going away, which maybe it already has, who's going to be held responsible or accountable for creating this illegal document in the first place? This openly discriminatory document. No one. No one will. It'll just be, again, back to the drawing board. Let's find another way to take from whites and give to non-whites. It's amazing. It says, quote, Showing up for racial justice created created list of elements. This is an organization, apparently, showing up for racial justice. They created a list of elements of whiteness that can be used for reflection. Oftentimes, policies, practices, systems, etc., coming from the sole lens of whiteness, are taken as the norm instead of engaging in those multiple perspectives. It says, quote, how is your worldview and practices within education centered in whiteness? It says, what racist beliefs have you internalized? What are specific steps we can take? These people can't write. Steps, you mean? What specific steps can, can people take to decenter whiteness in our educational practices? Unquote. It says, the memo suggests a video resource called Whiteness WTF as well as other videos and books that aim to help staff to continue their journey along the development of understanding whiteness. Quote, achieving equity may require an unequal distribution of resources and services in order to ensure that all children have an equal opportunity to a free and appropriate public education, the memo explained. I'm going to read that again. Because the dummies who write this don't even hear their own hypocrisy. They said, achieving equity may require an unequal distribution of resources in order to ensure that all children have an equal opportunity to a free and appropriate public education. You can't have both. You can't have unequal distribution and then have equal opportunity. What is wrong with these people? They are deranged. They sound vaccinated. It says, quote, The strengths of students, staff, families, and community members shall be illuminated to eliminate implicit and explicit deficit thinking. Well, speaking of deficit thinking, I think you're Exhibit A, whoever wrote this. I'm telling you what, they are certifiable. It says the memo urged personnel 
to, quote, create space to have brave conversations about race and to understand that race plays a role throughout society and education. No, it doesn't. Not unless you keep bringing it up. That's the only presence it has. The people who just keep bringing it up and bashing white people. It's amazing. It says it states that the faculty needs to move past the notions of I treat everyone equally and I don't see race. <laughs> they're openly they're openly calling themselves bigots in this entire document. They're openly stating it. And they're saying if anybody says that they just see humans, good people and bad people, then there's something wrong with you, basically, and you're lying to yourself. I'm telling you what. I mean, the whole document is right here. It is nuts. These, these people are beyond strange. Educational Community and District Climate School Guide is what they call it. It's the normalization of insanity. This is what brings down any organization. It's what brings down any business. It's what brings down anything. If you fill an area with stupid people and you expect it to last for any length of time, it won't. If you have a mechanics shop and you fill it with people who don't know how to change tires, remove lug nuts, take the wheels off of rubber, change oil, service an engine or a transmission, what are you going to end up with? You're not going to have a mechanics shop anymore. It'll close. This is exactly what's happening with the education business. And people, of course, think that it's going to be replaced with something. And this is the level of evil, I think, that a lot of people just don't understand is, is that this is the purposeful takedown of these kinds of environments on purpose, again, and they do not intend on replacing it with anything. The logical and alternative answer has always existed. We know that it's homeschooling. We know it's programs like Abeka.com. We know it's free thinking. It's ingenuity. It's a thousand different things that are not constrained by the brick-and-mortar environment and the nonsense that they have to listen to or, or even see with their own eyes on a day-in and day-out basis. In fact, let me give you an example. You can't make this up. I put this out on Gab, actually. The state of Oklahoma has created a, a bill, it's a real bill, that states that if children, who, by the way, I should say this also, the state of Oklahoma has a really based uh, state education superintendent. I've played his audio on the show before. The, the guy's about as Christian and as based as you could possibly get. And I, again, I think wrapping his arms around the corrupt nature of education, even in his state, is going to be a tough task for him. Because again, I don't think he understands the depth of the lies that get taught within the actual curriculum itself. But either way, he's specifically going after a lot of the, again, the gay degeneracy and the rainbow flags and the this and the that and the DEI and all that other stuff, which is great. I mean, it should be eliminated. But at the exact same time, uh, and this is hilarious, the actual state legislature in Oklahoma has created a bill to eliminate the existence of what are referred to as furries. And these, these are students who dress up like they are animals. They'll wear cat ears or they'll, you know, they'll wear a tail around their belt or whatever the hell. And they walk around the hallways dressed like an animal or attempting to look like an animal. Because again, they, I don't know, they, 
get off on it or they think it's funny or whatever it is. They're expressing themselves, Sean. Leave them alone. They're just expressing themselves. Yes, that's right. When I was expressing myself as, as a youth, that was the first thing that came to my mind, that I need to dress up like an animal. Well, as it turns out, this particular bill openly states that the school is allowed to call animal control and have animal control show up to the school to arrest the student who is dressed up like a furry. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. See, that's legislation I can get behind. That's a real thing. In fact, let me read it for you right here. House Bill 38, I'm sorry, 3084, it says. This is from this year. It says, as introduced, an act relating to schools prohibiting certain students from participating in school curriculum or activities, requiring the student's parent or guardian to pick the student up from school, providing for removal of the student by animal control services, providing for codification, and providing an effective date. It says, quote, be it enacted by the people of the state of Oklahoma, it says section one new law, a new section of the law to be codified in the Oklahoma statutes as section 11-301 of title 70, unless there is created a duplication in numbering, reads as follows, continues, it says students who purport to be an imaginary animal or animal species or who engage in anthropomorphic behavior, commonly referred to as furries, at school shall not be allowed to participate in school curriculum or activities. The parent or guardian of a student in violation of this section shall pick the student up from the school, or animal control services shall be contacted to remove the student. It says this act shall become effective November 1st of 2024. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's great. Isn't that great? They're going after the actual problem, the real problem. But they have to actually make laws and acts in order to get this through. You would think that would be just standard school policy, perhaps not the animal control thing, but, you know, a dress code violation. You can't do this. Dress appropriately. Nope. Not the schools. They don't want to do that. So what is, you know, I mean, what does the state legislature do? Well, they listen to the state superintendent who says, get rid of this crap. And then they write up a quick bill and they go, all right, we'll get rid of it. Now, any school doing it is breaking the law. Amazing. Amazing. Now think of how many other laws that they have to pass or bills that they have to enact or whatever in order to uh, clean up the real problem. It's endless. It's amazing. But there is this too, and more good news actually. This is from jonathanturley.org. This was from January 18th, so my apologies, a little late here, but either way, it's titled, quote, Penn State Loses Major Motion in Race Discrimination Case. This is, this is the way here. This is good. It says, we previously discussed a lawsuit, the lawsuit of Dr. Zach K. DePiro against Penn State over an alleged hostile work environment and racial discrimination linked to anti-racism training and material. Again, it's much like what they're trying to push in Milwaukee. 
Same kind of deal, but this guy sued, and well, it's working out for him. Uh, it says Judge Wendy Beetlestone, if that's her real name, just denied a critical motion to dismiss DePiro versus Penn State, which with strong language concerning DEI programs. It says DePiro brought this case under Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. And it says, as previously discussed, there were roughly 40 defendant trustees, professors, and administrators named in the complaint below. This includes Professor, no way I get this name, uh, Liliana Naden, if I'm right. It says, who was an associate professor of English and served as uh, DePiro's supervisor and chair of the English department and writing program coordinator. DePiro alleges that he was individually singled out for ridicule and humiliation due to his race. He also alleges that he was expected to follow and support the view that, quote, white supremacy exists in the language itself, and therefore, that the English language itself is racist, unquote. DePiro also alleges that faculty were encouraged to participate in anti-racist workshops and trainings, including one titled, quote, White teachers are the problem, unquote. What is most interesting about the complaint is that it alleges policies that would violate core academic freedom principles from the content of his classes to grading. He alleges that he was told to adopt a race-based grading system. Specifically, he alleges that the failure to grade minorities on par or better than whites would be treated as de facto racist. It says, quote, defendants instructed DePiro that outcomes alone, regardless of the legitimacy of methods of evaluation, mastery of subject matter, or intentions, demonstrate whether a faculty member's actions are racist or not. Defendants call this social justice and anti-racism, quote unquote. At the core of their ideology, defendants discriminate twofold on the basis of race. First, Defendants' bigotry manifests itself in low expectations. They do not expect black or Hispanic students to achieve the same mastery of academic subject matters as other students, and therefore insist that deficient performance must be excused. Accurate assessment of abilities, if it happens to show disparate performance among different racial groups, it says, is therefore condemned as racist, quote-unquote. It says, the defendant's bigotry manifests itself in overt discrimination against students and faculty who do apply consistent standards, especially white faculty, unquote. They're screwed. Penn State's screwed. You can't defend this. And they're right. It's like a, it's a double whammy of racism. You're not, you're not just calling the professor who's not following through with the policy a bigot and a racist because they're not following through with it. The faculty and their policies are calling any minority student or anybody who isn't white stupid and that there's no way that you can achieve the way that a white person can. And then again, at the exact same time, well, if you don't adhere to our rules and parameters, well, you're a white supremacist and a racist. Give me a break. Everybody should take these people to court all of the time. All of the time. And again, they state it right here. It's an open violation of the Civil Rights Act every single time. 
And people always misconstrue the Civil Rights Act. They always think to themselves, well, the Civil Rights Act was to give equal rights to black Americans, and that was the whole point. No, it was to give equal rights to everybody, hence the word equal and civil. That's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole point. It's for everybody, regardless of skin color, race, ethnicity, etc., etc. It's amazing. But again, what's going to happen in this case? If Penn State loses and they have to pay out, and then they have to get rid of their policy, is anybody going to go to jail? No. They're not going to go to jail. They're not going to fire the people for actually proposing such a stupid idea that clearly breaks the law. And then everybody's back to square one. Then they'll try to hide it another way. It's amazing. That leads me now to this, believe it or not. I can't believe the transition is this smooth. This now has to do with the article that I reviewed for Sage Open. And again, Sage Open is an online publication of Sage Publication, which is, again, widely known for their, uh, their academic manuscripts and academic articles and peer-reviewed, quote-unquote, whatever. That doesn't mean anything. I'm sure someone who was another reviewer of this would read it and say that it was trash. But it, it's not trash at all. It's actually remarkable. Uh, here's the title, and this is based out of Turkey, believe it or not. Now, that's not going to matter because one of the things that I learned when I was in graduate school, having talked with numerous individuals uh, who are in the education business on an international level, these people are experiencing the same problems that we are. They experience the exact same degeneracy, the exact same workplace environments, and the bullying and all, you know, the corruption and the crime. They experience the same kinds of things that we do in America in the education system, specifically within, again, K-12 schools and university settings. But here's the title of this particular article, which again, I recommended for publication. It says, it's titled, quote, Effects of Mobbing, Mobbing, M-O-B-B-I-N-G, on Organizational Commitment and Organizational Silence Levels of Teachers. And again, the reason that this was sent to me is because I'm a licensed, well, not, it's not a license. I'm just an approved reviewer for Sage Publications based on, uh, you know, based on my, my past work and things of that nature. So I said, yeah, I'll, re I'll review articles for you if you want. And every now and again, maybe like twice a year, they'll send me something. Sometimes I say, no, I don't want to review it. And then uh, sometimes I do. So anyway, here's the abstract. And this is, again, it's very cool because this destroys almost all of the arguments that the so-called left would have regarding what goes on in school environments, who's responsible, and, and what negative impact it actually has on what kind of person. And then once I read the abstract, I'll, I'll do my best to basically summarize it, but they do a pretty decent job here too. It says, the aim of this research is to examine the relationship between mobbing, which again, in their definition of mobbing is harassment, bullying, intimidation, retribution within the, within the school environment, among, among employees. That's specifically what they're targeting here. It says that teachers are exposed to and their levels of organizational, organizational silence and commitment. It says 300 secondary school teachers selected by simple random sampling method participated in the study. It says the data were collected through a survey including personal information form, mobbing scale, organizational silence scale, and organizational commitment scale. Research data were analyzed with statistical package 
or Social Sciences SPSS 26.0 software. It says, as a result of the research, teachers' mobbing perceptions were found to be low. A significant and positive relationship was determined between mobbing and organizational silence. A significant but negative relationship was determined between mobbing and commitment. It says mobbing is a predictor for both organizational silence and organizational commitment. It has been determined that mobbing behaviors increase organizational silence and decrease organizational commitment, unquote. Now, does that shock anybody? Does it shock anybody that in any working environment, if you have bullying, intimidation, retribution, uh, harassment, anything along those lines among the adults who work within the building, that that would decrease people's wanting or, uh, I, I would say, interest in being in the environment? Of course not. I mean, that's not surprising. The, the same thing is true, again, when it comes to organizational silence, that it causes people to be more silent within the environment. That's, that's also true. And yeah, again, their organizational commitment. They don't care about the building anymore. They slowly stop caring about everything that's going on. This is, this is, a, you know, this is a huge deal. I want to get down to the conclusion here and the discussion because one of the things that they actually suggest and and openly discuss is that they openly state that professional development doesn't exist for school teachers regarding this kind of stuff which again was why I wanted to get into higher ed at the time I wanted to get into teacher education to teach them and these individuals who wanted to be actual school teachers about what really goes on in the environment, what to avoid, what to pay attention to, learn, le- learn what their rights are, and then show them the literature and the statistics and have them read the books associated with, essentially, bullying in the workplace and harassment in the workplace. But again, this is something that is not covered by and large in teacher education programs at the university level, which is why you have the most brainwashed now wanting to be school teachers, and they're walking straight into a buzzsaw when it comes to American K-12 schools, and they have no idea. Again, I said it too in the substack uh, regarding the Ethan Crumbly situation. Same thing. These people are 100% unprepared for everything that's taking place in the actual environment now. They have no idea that as a school teacher, you can find yourself in a court of law having to testify with lawyers everywhere, trying to determine what it is that you know or don't know about a specific incident that took place in the school building. Again, these young people at the university level, still after all the COVID lie and the mask wearing abuses and everything else, all that school-sanctioned child abuse, they still want to be school teachers, but they have no idea the legal trouble that they're actually walking to into rather is, is certainly higher today than it's ever been. But here's the discussion of the study, and, and I'll just briefly summarize it before I actually read the suggestions that they provide. What the study showed was, and what the study specifically broke up, is again, among all of those different parameters that I mentioned earlier, there were at least four surveys that they were given. 
they measured the individuals based on their levels of education, whether the employees were married or not, how long they've been in the environment, and then what subject they taught. And what it showed was is that none of those things mattered. And this, is, again, is what would drive the left up the wall. It showed that none of those things mattered. It didn't matter what subject they taught again. It didn't matter how long they've been a school teacher or in the business of education. It didn't matter how many degrees they had. And, it, and it, again, it didn't matter if they were married or they weren't. The only difference, at least based on my interpretation of their study, was that if a employee was a single employee and not married, that they were more likely to not be silent on an issue as opposed to someone who was married. But they said it wasn't a huge difference. So it was almost irrelevant. But either way, they stated that across the board, it, it just didn't matter because harassment and emotional torture and retribution and bullying and a thousand other negative things that happen in the environment impact everybody equally. And it, again, it, all those specific parameters really don't matter. All those different outliers and those you know, different variables in the so-called equation, they, they just didn't matter. Again, that right there goes against anything that the left would tell you. The left would tell you it's black students that are picked on all the time. They would tell you it's the trannies that are picked on all the time. They would tell you that uh, you know the, the whites never do anything wrong. None of that's true. And again, how people carry themselves in those environments, certainly from a student standpoint, matters. I mean, if I walked around in a school building uh, as an adult, as an employee with a tail sticking out of my ass, and uh, cat ears on my head, well, I would expect to get made fun of by everybody equally. As it turns out, that's what happens. And in those environments, again, even from sort of the, the, the top-down hierarchy that exists, so to speak, regarding superintendents and administrators right down to school teachers, among the employees, they all get picked on. They all get you know, they, they all have retribution uh, leaning their way. They all get harassed. Again, whether it's emails or it's verbal communication or it's the physical presence of somebody, whatever it may be, it, it just doesn't matter. And what they state, of course, in the study is, this is why the environments are unproductive. And that shouldn't shock anybody either. They're unproductive because they tolerate this kind of behavior instead of squashing it before it even shows itself. So here were the suggestions of the study. It said the following, quote, Teachers, school administrators, researchers, and those who direct the country's education have separate duties in order to prevent mobbing and organizational silence and to increase organizational, organizational commitment. Rather, It says administrators should create fair, equitable, merit-based environments in educational institutions. This will prevent jealousies, and conflicts, and will dry up the life the lifelines rather that feed mobbing. It says a good manager should be a good listener and observer, and should see the complaints and criticisms he receives as a means of development. Managers should be given in-service courses 
especially regarding communication, and should be encouraged in this regard. Managers should aim to combat mobbing. Lack of clear job descriptions within the organization can cause intimidation and silence. Managers should make a high level of effort in this regard. Preliminary preparations and one-on-one meetings with teachers will be beneficial. The school administrator must create a suitable school climate. The teacher should feel peaceful and conflicts should be minimized. Implementation of the necessary sanctions will set a precedent for people with similar tendencies. If attempts at psychological violence cannot be resolved in good faith, warnings, reprimands, salary penalties, etc. may be given. It says responsible ministries and unions should seek solutions to mobbing in consultation. Training should be organized, laws and regulations should be, should be prepared, and awareness should be created. Any researcher can create a useful database by working only with individuals who have experienced serious mobbing. Rewarding the teacher or at least making him or her feel valuable will further strengthen his or her commitment. Seminars and conferences can be organized. The school administrator should take the initiative to organize these organizations and make an effort to make the teachers embrace the school. A separate unit can be established in schools for the orientation of teachers. A team can be formed with the school consisting of employees who are trained in mobbing or at least having strong communication skills. This team can mediate between the parties and also provide training from time to time, unquote. Here's the problem with all of that. Again, it sounds nice on paper. And yes, they are suggestions, and they're good suggestions. They're just not likely to take place. Not after the 2020 debacle worldwide. Not after the mask-wearing abuses, and certainly not here in the States regarding the shot-taking abuses and the intimidation and throwing kids out of school for coughing and sneezing. And then even, again, staff members disagreeing with one another about this giant psychological operation. There's just no way. Not to mention, when I was reading that, I was continuing to think about possible retribution, ironically enough, that would exist if you were actually trying to meet with administrators to talk with them about the bullying that takes place within environments and the harassment and so on and so on. These people would engage in retribution against you. They would openly retaliate and say, well, they think it's a violent environment. Uh, Let's go harass them and we'll teach them otherwise. I mean, these people are crazy. But again, the study is sound and it's legit, I think, because again, they make good suggestions. It's, a, it, it's quality stuff. It was quality surveys. And again, it blows up the, the leftist narrative that if you are a, you know, basically of a particular clique, then you're more likely as an adult in the environment to be harassed or be mistreated or XYZ. And the fact is, nope, in these environments, in these school environments, everybody's fair game. Everybody's fair game. It's open season on everybody and anybody. It just boils down to, are you a nice person who likes to be left alone and leaves other people alone? Or are you an asshole? That's it. So well done. But there you go. Again, it's not available to the public yet because it hasn't been published. Still in review, but I recommended it. So there you go. Okay. Jab stuff. 
just a couple of things. Let's play. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's play some audio. This was making the rounds the other day. Uh, I know a lot of people were talking about it, and rightfully so. The Denver Health Medical Team is the first to receive an Ebola vaccine. What could go wrong? Uh, give these dimwits a listen. Uh, it's the doctor of this hospital and a first responder who happens to be a female paramedic. And they've received the Ebola vaccine because they want to get ahead of the curve on a possible Ebola outbreak. So both of these women will be dead in no time. Uh, anyway, pray for them and give this a listen in three, two, one. A few medical employees at Denver Health made history today. They became some of the first people to get the live Ebola vaccine for preventative measure likely heard of Ebola, a rare but deadly disease. Back in 2014, there was a major outbreak in West Africa that did lead to some cases here in the United States. And there's reporter Jalisa Irizarry sharing with us why a medical team here in Colorado, some of the first to get the vaccine. Go ahead and take her back to the room where we were set up. Yeah. Okay. So much of a hospital is procedural. Hello. But nothing is routine and the doctor is the patient. Oh, and we're like fun people. Right? Dr. Maria Frank is eager today to take on something exciting and even a little momentous. Historic? Yeah. Dr. Frank is getting the Ebola vaccine today. Little Denver Health says they're the first high infection medical team to get it as a preventative measure. And there we are. They're one of 13 centers in the U.S. Right. that can care for Ebola patients. Just like that. Although right now, the likelihood is low. And even though there's no current outbreaks happening in the world, we want to make sure that people have the chance to um, be protected in case we need to care for a patient that has a disease with a mortality potentially of 70%. In 2014, the largest Ebola epidemic started in West Africa. A few cases trickled into the United States. 11 people were treated. Just one person died. The FDA approved the first vaccine five years later. Ebola has a very high mortality rate, so it's exciting to be a part of this next step in treating this disease. Elizabeth Lenz is another recipient today. She's a Denver health paramedic. That's also part of the high-risk infection team. She helps transport highly infectious patients that need care at the treatment center. All right. Today, she can do that with a little peace of mind. It burns a little bit in the shoulder, but... All right. <laughs> Knowing she's now protected. Exactly. Lens hopes this vaccine turns the calendar to the next era, one with more treatment and less tragedy. We're advancing and finding a way to, to actually prevent this. As for as how long the Ebola vaccine lasts, Dr. Frank says right now it's just one dose. The vaccine they got is only available to frontline workers that may be at risk of being exposed to the virus. Popularity of vaccines took a big hit. Uh, through COVID, but you have to wonder. I mean, they're not inventing them for fun. They, a lot of people in, in medic, medicine say they work, they're important, they save lives. Exactly. And knowing that Ebola has such a high mortality rate, you know, back in West Africa in 2014, that was brutal. Thousands were killed at that point. So knowing how high that mortality rate, they don't want to take any chances. They want to get protected. Hopefully, the experience with COVID has educated people about the spread of these. Because Ebola was one of those so, yeah, and it, and it spreads, and it is the thing. Oh, where to begin? Okay, let's begin here. First of all, the Dr. Frank, if that's her real name, uh, I got to tell you, it's all in the eyes. Her eyes are as big as saucers. 
Yay, I like taking shots. I take as much as I possibly can. Yay. She's a crazy person. And of course, they don't read the package insert. The package insert for that shot, just like all shots, not COVID because there was no package insert, but just like flu shots and everything else, it openly states that it sheds. That shedding is involved in this Ebola vaccine. And I love, again, how they get so excited about something that, well, there's no outbreak yet, but at least we're prepared and we're protected. No, you're not. You've just made yourself ill. You've just weakened your immune system and your DNA yet again. You've broken it yet again. You're more of a genetically modified organism than you were beforehand. And if she's taking Ebola shots, you know she's boosted to the bone. I'm shocked she's alive. I bet there's not going to be a uh, a follow-up story as to whether or not she or that paramedic end up dead or not, but there you go. Again, they don't even read the package inserts. This is the same thing again that, that cost Kim, uh, Kim Carter her job. She was openly telling these dummies that she was working with who were running that hospital in Cincinnati, you don't read the package insert for the flu shot. It says shedding. That means that when you take it, you're going to get sick. And then you're going to make the people around you ill because of the poison that you put in your body. Not through coughing and sneezing, but through electromagnetism. That's what it is. This just proves it yet again. And then, of course, the news anchor at the end by saying, well, you know, it's uh, shots and the popularity of vaccines took a hit during COVID. It seems, uh, I think, good because doctors say vaccinations save lives and prevent things. I would like someone, anybody, to prove to me that a single vaccination or multiple vaccinations prevent against anything. You can't, because it doesn't exist. There isn't a single study out there that proves, beyond any doubt whatsoever, that any vaccination prevents against anything. They all harm. They don't belong in our body. They don't prepare you to get something before you might get it, maybe, possibly. It doesn't exist. But, you know, it's the news. It's the mainstream news. There you go. They're allowed to be stupid, and apparently it's not a crime. Okay. Speaking of crimes, and what certainly should be, I think, this whole premeditated murder stuff with disease X, watch out. I'm not scared, but whatever. Again, could be 5G related. We'll, we'll have to see in the future. Could just be AIDS related from all the jabs that have been given to people. Who knows? Either way, this was actual, uh, an actual congressional bill, or a House resolution, rather. It says the following here, and this was from, let's see, June of last year. From Congress.gov, it is H.R. 3832, titled Disease X Act of 2023. This, the sponsor of this was Representative Lori Trahan, a Democrat from Massachusetts, introduced on June 5th of 2023 in the House Energy and Commerce Committee. So, they've known about this since back then. That's interesting. Again, they wouldn't make some kind of a House resolution 
or discuss this uh, in Washington in the halls of Congress if they weren't planning on something anyway. Not to mention, you now have Tedros Adnan from the old World Health Organization encouraging all nations to sign their pandemic treaty because, well, it's premeditated murder and premeditated lockdowns in the future potentially, and they want everybody on board with the same script and the same lie. Good luck with that. Good luck. Again, it's not going to matter if countries propose it or adopt it uh, or even implement it. Again, I'm certain that hospitals and certainly the CDC and the FDA are going to go along with it. But again, ladies and gentlemen, this is premeditated murder. This is premeditated murder. And if there's good guys out there, they know that that's the case. And then shutting down these organizations has to exist in the future. You can't reform the FDA. You can't reform the CDC. They have to be done away with. Just saw a story the other day, too, about salmonella. A particular brand of meat needs to be pulled off of the shelves because of an outbreak of salmonella related to it. Salmonella gets all of a product pulled off of the shelves, but not a deadly biological weapon that's killed God knows how many people, tens of millions, if not hundreds by this point. Ridiculous. Here's the last one I have. From the expose, titled, Virology is a fraudulent pseudoscience and is a dying field, quote-unquote, according to biomedical scientists. Biomedical scientist Simon Lee, who has over 30 years in this field with almost a decade of which he spent working in the field of virology, yet he argues that, quote, while people regard virology as a bona fide hard science, it does not follow the scientific method and has its roots firmly in fraudulent pseudoscience. Correct. It goes through what the scientific method is, of course, which I've been over here on the show before and covered before. It says the entire practice of quote-unquote virology refutes itself. And then it says this, virology is a fraudulent pseudoscience. The cell culture method is not a valid experimental setup, as it was never designed according to the scientific method. The experiment creates the effect, the cytopathic effect, and then assumes the cause, the quote-unquote virus, without verifying that the assumed cause exists to begin with. The cytopathic effect is known to be caused by many other factors unrelated to a virus, quote-unquote, thus making the explanation of a fictitious virus as the culprit, unjustifiable. It said it is known that the cytopathic effect can be caused by bacteria, amoeba, parasites, antibiotics, antifungals, chemical contaminants, age and cell deterioration, and environmental stress. The cytopathic effect is not a valid dependent variable, as it is not a naturally observed phenomenon and it can be explained by various factors other than an invisible quote-unquote virus. And there you have it. It's poison. You take a bunch of poisons, you stir them around in a little, in a little dish, you suck them up, you stick them into somebody, and presto change you, we're preventing something. We're preventing you from getting a virus that doesn't exist and float around in the air. More and more people are waking up to this. I love it, including actual virologists themselves. This is a good thing. 
This is a very, very good thing. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening again. Make sure and tune into the Dangerous Info podcast if you're interested to learn more about the Michigan School District, the Oxford Community School District there in Oxford, Michigan. On Monday evening, on Jesse James's Dangerous Info podcast channel on Rumble. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll catch you on Wednesday. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.